When you and I think of pelvic floor therapy, the first thing that comes to mind is sort of internal work for those with pelvic floor pain. But Jessica Drummond is taking the concept of pelvic floor therapy to an entirely different level. She is the founder of the Integrative Women's Health Institute, the author of Outsmart Endometriosis and several other books. She is a speaker. She is a coach. She is a therapist. And she has taken the concept of nutrition and something called integrative nutrition and incorporated it and turned it into an entire business. And now she has literally an education empire that she teaches all around the world. And in today's Physio Mission podcast, I decided to get her on the show to go deep into how she developed and built her online business, how she built a team, why she decided to niche, how she gets speaking engagements, and how she uses her book as a lead generation magnet to bring people into her coaching program. If you are a physical therapist and you want to develop an online course, an online program, and build a business for yourself that is beyond just the clinical practice itself, then this episode of the Physio Mission Podcast is for you. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to the Physio Mission Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jared Cooper. This podcast is dedicated to helping young aspiring physical therapists navigate the muddy waters of what has now become our profession. I want to help you maximize your impact, your income, and your freedom. Throughout this podcast, I'll be interviewing mentors, clinical gurus, and successful business owners who have paved the way and shown us how it's done. Along the way, I'll also be sharing with you some secrets to my own success and how I started a private practice from scratch, developed an amazing team, and built and grew it to a seven-figure business. So without further ado, let our mission begin. Jessica, thank you so much for coming on the Physio Mission Podcast. You and I met about a year ago at, uh, at an event, and I saw you speak, and I said, okay, first of all, this is a human being that knows what she wants in life, and went out there and got it, and you're also delivering a service to a, a group of people that really, really needs it in women's health, and I really wanted to have you on because you've done amazing things in speaking, you're an author, um, you have an entire institute dedicated to what you do, and I thought it'd be great for my listeners to hear essentially your journey, how you got to where you are now. And there's a lot of different components that I think go into becoming successful in what you do. And I want to get into each of those components and kind of dive a little bit deeper. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. So gosh, well, I graduated from physical therapy school, uh, actually almost exactly um, 21 years ago. Okay. yesterday. <laughs> so would that be a DPT, an MPT or, or a PT? Uh, it was a D, it was an MPT. I was okay. the class either right before or two before they transitioned. So okay. it was very similar, but it was a three-year MPT. Okay. Um, then I started in orthopedics and sports medicine, and that's really what I had originally gone to physical therapy school for. I, um, I was an athlete as a kid and you know, it just seemed like a good fit. I was a, a kid who was an athlete who liked science and it was, a you know, kind of, I don't know, it's funny, you know, my daughter is now kind of moving in towards the path of starting to look at college and all of that. And I feel she's like all, she's all grown I up. I don't know. Your daughter is. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I feel like I don't even, yeah. And I'm like, I don't even know, like we're thinking about like, what do you want to do? And all these options. And I'm like, I don't really know if anyone really even asked me this. It was kind of like, this seems like a good idea. Do that, you know? Um, and it was. So I graduated from PT school and started in an outpatient orthopedic practice in Atlanta. 
And pretty quickly though, I began to explore a sort of specialist version of orthopedics, which really is what women's health is from a physical therapy standpoint. So working with people who had breast cancer with shoulder injury issues or pregnant women with back pain and just, you know, over the first three or four years, not even that long, like the first couple of three years of my practice specialized more and more in women's health. But I did have a pretty, a few years of great um, manual therapy mentorship in my first couple of jobs, which I think prepared me because women's health from a physical therapy standpoint is, is very manual therapy based. And of course, you can't take the pelvis out of the body. So um, it's, all, it's all part of that. So, but I, I worked in a specialty women's hospital and began to get more and more specialized in women's health, pelvic health, pelvic pain. And that was always the population of clients and patients that was most challenging. Women who had complex pelvic pain, endometriosis, vulvodynia, combinations of those things. And back then, you know, we didn't even have this sort of understanding of the biopsychosocial pain model. Um, we didn't talk a lot about the uh, neurophysiology of pain. So we were limited to more of an orthopedic perspective on that, which was very limited. And so as I began to specialize in looking at that, I realized that there were certain people with complex pelvic pain who using my physical therapy tools alone didn't get fully better. And even with everything else they were doing, surgery, medications, you know, the whole thing, psychotherapy sometimes. Um, and then I got sick. So after the birth of my first daughter, I got really sick. And I think it was now knowing everything I know, I think what happened to me was, was that I had a reactivation of Epstein-Barr virus, which I had had years earlier in high school. And I was extremely fatigued, anxious, getting all kinds of sick you know, went to, to traditional physicians for years, got no real um, solutions other than, you know, take a nap, try some antidepressants, you know, that sort of thing. Yep. And none of that worked, unfortunately. And, and none of what I knew worked, you know, I was like exhausted, but insomnia. So as a PT, you're like, exercise harder, right? <laughs> tire yourself out. That didn't work. So um, eventually I found functional medicine. And I found that because there was a physician, uh, I moved around a lot during that time too. It was a busy time in my life. I had a young kid. My husband was a consultant. We moved a lot. And we went back to Houston, Texas, where I had worked at that women's hospital. And there was a physician there who we sent all the, you know, quote unquote, difficult patients to people that we didn't understand why they weren't improving. And she was one of the earliest functional medicine physicians. So through my work with her, I realized that my nutrition, my lifestyle, my relationship to stress, as I transformed that, and I had to, I mean, I was so sick, I really couldn't work for at least a year, but I slowly recovered, but it was no, there was very little intervention, you know, a few supplements here and there. I, I did do acupuncture, which was very helpful, but there weren't a lot of tools. I had to kind of reorient my life and change my nutrition. And I had to take do that over a sustained period of time. And then I got so healthy in a way that I had probably never been. 
that I decided that let me see if I can take some of these tools and help the people that I wasn't able to fully help before. And then I continued my education in nutrition and began to study this and did some research. And that's really how it evolved, that I felt like I had these new tools that no one was applying to this population yet. And so I started to share them with anyone who didn't think I was crazy, which most people <laughs> first. <laughs> can, you, can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, I have my understanding of what functional medicine is, but not everybody knows really what that term really means. What, what can you define yeah. that for us? Sure. So functional medicine is a discipline neutral practice. Uh, there are certainly physicians and PAs and such and nurse practitioners who practice functional medicine. It's essentially the practice of medicine that looks for root causes rather than symptom management. And it's a biopsychosocial like systems approach. So you, you start with digestive optimization, immune optimization, endocrine, neurologic optimization. So it, it uses systems biology to, instead of saying like, oh, you've got a headache, let's relieve that pain. Let's figure out which system is out of whack that's causing the headache. Oh, and by the way, I also have allergies and you know constipation. And so these other things might fall away too, because the root cause of seemingly disparate symptoms perhaps lies within the same systems dysfunction. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah, interesting. So in the in the beginning of my chapters of my book, the physio frameworks, I talk a lot about the the that that a symptom is nothing more than the body's way of telling you that you're out of homeostasis. And that this mm -hmm. idea of homeostasis is this like balance point and that it exists in all systems of the body. And it sounds like just from your definition, functional medicine is cross-disciplinary. So it can be any practitioner can practice the concept of functional medicine, but at the root, functional medicine is about looking at each system in the body and focusing on the health rather than saying, okay, how do I relieve the symptom, which is, of course, just the byproduct of the imbalance in the first place. Exactly. And the only real difference between functional medicine and functional nutrition, which is technically what my doctorate is in, yep. is that people who practice functional medicine have the option because of their license of prescribing pharmaceuticals. Um, but otherwise, it's very similar. And if, if I ever get to the point, you know, if I have patients who need, you know, drugs, pharmaceutical drugs for any reason or surgery, then we just refer them to people who can do that, gotcha. whether they practice functional medicine or not. So you have a doctorate in functional nutrition. Mm -hmm. Clinical Does nutrition. Clinical mm -hmm. nutrition. To what extent can the everyday physical therapist integrate some of the concepts of functional nutrition into the conversations they have with their current clients? I would say 100%. I mean, it's not... And it's not entirely about like diet prescription. Okay. Now there are some times when it's li you're limited in your ability to make very personalized recommendations around nutrition, even food or supplementation state to state. Some states sure. it's totally wide open. Some are much more restrictive. Some are, most are pretty vague in terms of there's not really a lot of guidance one way or the other. But if we think about this perspective of root cause optimization, that applies to everything. It applies to sleep. It applies to circadian rhythm alignment, you know, daylight and night exposure, exercise, under-exercise, over-exercise, intensity of exercise, even exercise kind of prescription. So in a way, 
physical therapists could more intensely practice pieces of functional medicine than mm-hmm. maybe anyone else. Um, so, you know, and even our manual therapies, if we're thinking about them as supportive of systems optimization, then you're practicing functional medicine. The other, other difference would be ideally the patient is really kind of leading, and this is more coaching than functional medicine, but ideally you're not sort of applying a healing you know, modality as a long-term solution unless it does sort of like recalibrate the system and then you no longer need it. But you're, you're essentially teaching and, and facilitating and coaching people to actually implement tools in their life day after day that they can keep doing once they kind of make that transformation as a part of their life and, you know, they drink water in the morning instead of coffee or they, you know, get their daylight exposure or they do their outdoor walk for 30 minutes or whatever, that they are mostly taking responsibility for. And so they have more and more autonomy over their health. Right. So it's about their primarily about their behavior change rather than applying an intervention that somehow has a magical effect to it. But at some point in time, you went from just being a practitioner of functional nutrition and pelvic health to becoming a leader in the industry. So that's where, that's where I really want to go next because I really want to hear how you made that transition. And I don't just mean a leader clinically in the teaching, but also now you have an institute and you have courses. That's a very big shift. That's an entrepreneurial shift that a lot of clinicians never make. You can become a leader clinically, but never actually get the entrepreneurial bug and go in that direction. So let's start, let's start from like where you became an excellent clinician and then get to the point where you became an amazing entrepreneur. In some ways it's not like, it's not one after the other, right? So I all so I always had an inclination to teach as soon as I learned something. It was always like, oh my gosh, you guys, you have to know this. Like yeah. and so literally my first year out of school, like probably before I even hit my second clinical year, I had a student. I had students. So that happened right away. And then my third job, so I started in an outpatient ortho clinic in Atlanta, then I moved to Houston and I worked in a public hospital where I got a lot of great manual therapy mentorship and everything mentorship because that was just like a crazy environment, which was fantastic for learning um, and seeing everything, which you should certainly, if you're recently out of school, go work in the craziest place you can. <laughs> You'll learn yeah. everything. Yeah. I think um, you know, it's interesting you say that because, you know, a, a lot of young new grads are like, ah, oh, no, I'm never going to work in a mill. And they're, I'm like, why? Like, go work where you just see everybody, everything you could possibly see for just, just do it for a year just to like, you get the reps in on a, on a lot of different variety. <laughs> There's something to be said for that, really. Right. It's, it's practice. It's, you don't get rattled by anything, you know, it, it builds your clinical like um, rapport. There's a lot you can learn in, in a crazy first couple of jobs. So that, and then from there, I went to a specialty women's hospital because I really knew I wanted to women's health and I tried to build it in the public pro- hospital, but it is very difficult with just kind of the environment at the time. I think they actually do have more of that now. So at the women's hospital, my uh, supervisor there, my boss there 
pretty early on, like by the, I was, you know, maybe a three years out of school or something like that, four years out of school. She was like, this is all I really remember about this, but she was kind of like, you're speaking at CSM this year. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know? Okay. And, um, she's just like, pick what you want to talk about. And, you know, and she always had us be very active in the section and leadership take leadership positions and, you know, learn to do everything. Like she was always, you know, making sure we understood the policies and all this kind of background stuff, even though we weren't necessarily, you know, I had no ambition at that time to be like a manager or anything. So I was like, okay. So I agreed to teach, um, I think it was postpartum exercise or perinatal exercise, something like that. Okay. And this was, you know, I'm vaguely remembering this because this was literally like 18, 17, 18 years ago. It was before my daughter was even born. So I remember standing on this huge stage. There were like 250 people in that room. And I had to facilitate like an exercise training during one of the CSM sessions, which was big. So it was both like people sitting in chairs and doing the exercise part. And so I, it was a little bit baptism by fire, like go speak to all the people who you're intimidated by <laughs> at like this giant room. And, but it, it was really like, this is just what you're doing. I don't remember there being sort of an option. And so I went and did that. And she, from there, she encouraged us to teach courses, to assist with courses, to go to lots of courses. Anything we wanted to learn or teach was like open season. And anyone we wanted to learn from, she would bring in. So she was a great mentor for just again, sort of like that first job at the hospital, like trying stuff that I had no idea how to do. And I think that's the best preparation for being an entrepreneur because you constantly are doing something you have no idea how to do. Right. <laughs> Which so, is essentially yeah. the life of an so, entrepreneur, at least. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, after I got, after I got sick and then we were still kind of in this crazy life situation where we were moving every year where my husband's job was at one point I said, okay, I had taught a couple courses about this. I was starting to integrate it into my practice. And I was like, I can't do all these things at the same time. I had a, I had a baby and a seven year old at this point. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to start a health coaching practice and just do this piece of it. <laughs> Chris, I had no idea what I was getting into. I had never desired to start a business. I didn't know what I was doing. And so I just had this desire to, to help people in this way that I, that very few people knew about. I mean, functional medicine was a very rare thing in like 2000, even in 2011 when I got kind of more serious about it, but I started doing it around 2009. And so I, when we moved that time, I didn't go back to the clinic. I literally like had a three season porch in the winter with a heater off this rental house, a computer. And I just started learning how to health coach. So because of that, I had to learn marketing, which I didn't know anything about either. And I started just taking like online courses and going to local meetups. What are some of the best marketing courses you took that you think really moved the needle for you? You know, I learned some really good things from Fabian Fredrickson a really long time ago. Um, that was helpful. That was kind of my introduction to digital marketing. Mm -hmm. And then honestly, 
I don't know. I mean, it was really just kind of, then I got involved in this mentorship group, which was, it's called Mindshare. It still exists now. Um, that was more health online entrepreneurs. So there was a lot of people I could learn from and people I could network with. And even when I first started learning this, it was more like I went to like a local, like women's networking, women's business networking thing. And then I met a producer of our local Connecticut channel Four news or something like that. And she was like, Hey, do you want to teach this stuff on TV? And I was like, sure. Again, no idea what I was doing. (laughs) And I just showed up and tried to not freeze while they asked me questions. And then I had to, to cook on camera, same idea, but I got really lucky because of this mom that was like a friend of a friend that I met at the playground when I was picking my kid up from school one day, literally had an Emmy from working, was the producer for Diane Sawyer. And she came to my house and taught me how to cook on TV, which is a huge ordeal. I had to come prepared with all this stuff. And so Did she there were a lot of- the, the finished the finished item in the oven and then- do the whole thing. Well, thankfully there was no oven. Okay. Who <laughs> made that famous back yeah. in the days where there was like, I can't remember her name, the one with the curly hair, the older lady who, you know, there would always be a finished pie in the oven. You know, she'd show you how to make it and she'd pull it out. But anyway. Yeah. Julia so, Child. Julia, Julia Childs. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> you, you had these early opportunities to get some press exposure and to get on some TV. And then at, at what point in time did and that And I just lead? took it. Yeah. 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 But what's at what point in time did that lead to essentially what started to become a bigger business? Because it's it's still you. The story is still you. It's you doing this, you doing that. Um, but the hardest part, I think, because these are awesome opportunities that sort of just showed up, and you and and you had the guts to really grab them and say, "Okay, I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to do this anyway." And I'm going to see how it works out. We did that at CSM and then the, then the news opportunity. But at some point in time, there, there, there's a turning point in any business where there, you need to grow in order to have a bigger impact. And I think that yes. ultimately is where some people decide to stay small or to get bigger. And you decided to get a little bit bigger. Can you, do, would you mind fast forwarding to that time point? If you can remember what that decision was or what was happening at that point, where you decided to move in a bigger direction? So I think that was probably around 2012 or 13. So there was one point where I was developing the health coach certification program. I decided to make this much more formal. I wanted like a clear like women's health training course. And so there were two things I did around that same time. One was I, before I even, before even 2011, when I kind of even officially, you know, started this around when I was still working at the women's hospital, my, my boss there gave me the option opportunity to like use our amphitheater to teach the first iteration of that course. It was a two day. She was like, you know, we had like 20 people there, 25 people. And I just did, I just created a course and I that, had uh, some power, Was that video. PowerPoint? Was that uh, yeah. live on stage? Was it participatory? It was on live on stage. Yeah, it was live on stage. It Because it wasn't really hands-on, it was like coaching and nutrition. Okay. It was like a seated auditorium, PowerPoint, you know, demos and me speaking. So okay. it was a two-day course, similar to what you would do for any continuing ed course, except there wasn't like a PT lab version. There were like nutrition labs 
Right. You okay. Know? So that was like the first iteration of the coach certification. And I also videotaped it thinking that maybe, you know, I might use pieces. I might put it online. Who knows? I got a bunch of t video testimonials while I was there as well. And Which then, very important tip, um, by the way, for anybody who's listening, when, who ever does a course, get your testimonials right after you do the course. Yeah. Or even like during as, yeah. as, as much like all the time, the whole time. So video testimonials are valuable because you I still use some of that stuff from, you know, 2000, whatever that was, 2009. So let's say 2013, 2012, I started to talk about this more on social media because again, don't forget, like even that was kind of new. Like we didn't have all the stuff we have right now where you could just like pop a video up. Like I didn't, there was no iPhone, right? right. You had to have like a camera and a tripod and like right. you learn how to video edit, which was a complete pain. Yep. You know, Facebook, I only had a, my personal Facebook page like around 2011, Never mind, like anything with that. So uh, in some various Facebook groups that I don't have any memory of how I got involved in, I met people that were interested in my perspective. I also met a lot of people who thought it was crazy and were very vocal about it, but I just sort of ignored them because- Wait, wait what do you mean? They thought you were crazy. Well, they thought this was, um, you know, there's no way what you eat could impact pain. Um, your one guy threatened to turn me into the board that I was doing something that was dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I had all kinds of like negative comments that like, I was just, I, you what, know, what, um, how did you deal with those? I mean, mostly I just ignored them at first. I was like, no, no, there's data. And I tried to like fight back. And then I thought, I don't care. I don't know who this is. I was like, I know enough of the people at, because I had spoken at CSM years ago. I knew all the people at APTA. I was like, no one's going to come for me. I was like, this is fine. Yeah. So mostly I just ignored it, but it was kind of hurtful because some of it was actually from colleagues um, who were just like, you're getting all woo woo and you know, things like that. But whatever, for the most part, honestly, I don't even remember. I just started ignoring it. And then um, people who resonated with it began to invite me to speak. So I kind of had like an internal rule that like, hey, anywhere in the world, someone invites me that has at least 20 people in a room, I'm going to go teach this. And that was the best decision I ever made because it allowed me to create the program with real time feedback. But it was difficult. I mean, for a year, I went to like a small town in Ireland. I went to London. I went to California. I went to New Jersey. I went anywhere. International platforms find you. Facebook. And then did you pay your way to go to those Most, places? Mostly. A couple of them paid me a little bit or like okay. they had lot, you know, I went to go teach at a conference and I got paid for that. But I, okay. you know, literally one person I met who's still a good friend we just met in like a Facebook group and she's like, Hey, I'm teaching this comp this course about perimenopausal women. I think your perspective would be great. We met on like on a zoom call or Skype or something. I don't think Zoom sure. even existed. And she literally invited me to her house. I don't think I had ever, I had definitely never been to England. I maybe had been out of the country like once before or twice. I got on a plane. I flew to her house. I didn't know this person at all other than a couple of Skype calls. She hosted me. It was lovely. I went, spoke at her conference, 
And then I spoke at another conference because I was there. So I kind of arranged as much as I could. I arranged things that were, you know, close by. Sure. Um, but otherwise, I just went anywhere that would have me. And I developed the course in depth um, in real time. Now, it's expanded a lot over the years because now there's a board, like we have a, the, there's a national board of health coaching and they approve they approve courses and it's a lot more like, you know, there's a board certification. It's, it's a lot more regimented now, but the foundations of it was that year. And the other thing that I did that year, because of course it is exhausting to fly all over the world and do this, um, was I met, I sat down with an accountant and I created a spreadsheet and I was like, look, is this profitable? Cause <laughs> I'm spending a lot of money. I'm really tired and I'm <laughs> creating a lot of things, but how do I make this like real? Because as I said, you know, I didn't know anything about business really. And even the only, even at that point I had some marketing training, but I didn't really have any business any business training. training. Did you have kids at the time? How old were your kids? Yeah. Um, so my kids were about three and say 10. Wow. And so you had to, I mean, that's tough. Cause like, you know, I don't know if it, you know, some of my listeners, of course, have kids, but but many don't. And when you have, I mean, my 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 young one's seven, and when you have a child that changes the perspective on travel entirely, when you go away, and it's just your husband and the kids, and he's got to go to work, that you know that that it, there's a demand on your time all the time when you have kids, and you have to give up that time to go and do that. So there was a sense, I would imagine, that of passion in you and that in that decision to go and fly all the way to England, to Ireland, to speak to 20 or 30 people. What, what was it that was driving you to do that in that moment? Why was this so important to you? I think I just knew the potential, you know, I knew how many people, how many patients, cause I had, you know, by then I had 10, 12 years of clinical experience under my belt. And I knew that like, I had a tool for people who were suffering that mm. most people didn't know about and it saved my life. I mean, I was really sick when I was sick and to then show people like to show my colleagues that this thing exists and it's so simple and it's basically free. I mean, it's not totally free, but it's cheap. You know, it's like day to day life change is so much more powerful than we've ever been told mm. And I just couldn't not share that. And I would have maybe, it was funny because early around that, you know, early time, the years between 2010 and 20, you know, 2009 and 2014 are kind of a blur because of what you're saying. I mean, I had a, like my, I had like a five-year-old and I was pregnant and I was on bed rest and I had a baby, you know, that whole time is also just crazy a blur because I have a, I didn't sleep all of those years, yeah. right? Because it's like you're breastfeeding and someone's waking up to get a drink or whatever. It's, it's an exhausting time. But there, there was an underlying flame of this perspective from a health standpoint mm -hmm. literally saved my life and allowed me to even have that second kid. And too many people don't know about this because, hey, I went to like really good college and I was in like the number three PT school and I had no idea. And not only did I have no idea, but I was the doctors that were taking care of me for the first couple of years were at 
big name teaching hospitals and they were very well-meaning, but they had no idea. Right. And so I was just like, I, I can't help but share this. And in fact, during that time, one of the urogynecologists that I worked with in Houston was like, just come work for me. Like, why are you sharing this for everybody? Like, you're the only one who knows about it. You should be seeing all the patients. And I was like, well, that's impossible. You know, there's 176 million women around the world with endo alone, never mind vulvodynia and other pelvic pain conditions and other chronic pain conditions. You know, I can't treat them all. I, and I, it was, it felt more important to me to, to train my colleagues. Right. And you were, you were sitting with your accountant and you said to him, is this profitable? And he said, yeah, so it was a woman, but I said, yeah, hey, she says, is this me. profitable? Because she said, here's the problem. I've worked with a lot of dentists and many of them pay to go to work. <laughs> and I was like, yes, I think I'm totally doing that, uh-huh. which I was for probably three years at least. And she was like, so she gave, she created this spreadsheet for me. And I don't remember all the components of it now, but basically it was like, you have to pay attention to what you're doing and you have to have some profit goals and you have to learn how to price things so that you actually can make profits Mm -hmm. on them. So I had to financially at one point stop and be like, cause I was bringing in decent revenue cause I could afford to do all these things to kind of was the speaking engagements or courses at that time? The, this, the course slash speaking. So, and I was also seeing health coaching clients like direct, you know, telehealth then all through telehealth. Yeah. Everything was telehealth. In fact, I, I built a beautiful office when I very first started this, like back in 2009, reclaimed wood floors. I envisioned all these like yoga retreats. No, I had, I, I was in Houston and I always said, Hey, do you want to come to the office or we can do it on the phone? A hundred percent of the people did it on the phone. I never put a stick of furniture in that place except a laptop, an old folding chair, and like a you know table from the garage. That's very funny and apropos, given obviously what's going on in our environment right now, and a lot of the things that I find myself needing services for myself, like I, I needed to get I had a, I had a doctor appointment for my ear a little while ago. And I was like, no, I'd, I'd rather do it on telehealth. Like I don't want to come in. Like there's something massively convenient about especially if you don't need special tests or anything like of just doing it this way. And I started my career as a trainer and as a health coach, I was certified through well coaches and I went through this eight month training program and the whole thing. And the, the conversations, they, I mean, it's nice to do them in person. You get sort of the energy or whatever, but you know, a lot of it can just be done through, through this, like the interaction that we're having right now. And so that's how you start. It's like, it's funny that you didn't have any furniture in, the, in this, because like, it's true. Like I have this beautiful vision of like, oh, the clinic is going to have this and this, like this, this wood behind me, like on the wall, yeah. I put that up there, you know, it looks nice and all. But the reality is it's like, no one cares about that. They just want to see, they just want to get the information that you have and get better. But anyway, so yeah. you, you, you had the meeting with your new, your uh, accountant. She said, you have to put certain things in place. You got to charge a little bit more money. This is what needs to happen to make it profitable. At what point in time did you actually go from the red to the black? And, and then from there, who was your first hire after that? Uh, so before I went from the red to the black, I hired someone um, around, you know, again, pre- right from the beginning, like around 2011, when I first built my first real website, which was expensive to do at the time because we didn't have like WordPress. Right, you had to hire somebody to build a website back then. Yeah. So it was like $5,000. I still remember yeah, that. And it was right. a big deal. 
Um, and I hired a virtual assistant who was a person who I Here knew overseas um, in the U.S., but I was living at the time in Connecticut and she was in Michigan. We knew okay. each other in Michigan. At, she was, she was in a mom's group of mine. Okay. I don't know. I must've like on Facebook or something said like, Hey, I'm thinking about hiring a virtual assistant. Or maybe I said that to someone, I have no idea, but she was like, Oh, I'm thinking about being a virtual assistant. I'm like, okay, great. And basically I just hired her. And so okay. that, that was the best thing I ever did. She still works for me. She knows how to do everything. Like she, if she doesn't know how to do it, she learns it. Cause she wasn't really tech aptitude at the time. Of course, neither was I, but now we both are. Um, cause essentially I now run a digital company and have been for a long time. So, but she's very organized. She was someone I knew personally and could trust. And it was just a really good thing. So I paid her more than me for years wow. and it was the best thing I ever did. Let, let me reflect on that. Let me, let yeah. me just let that sink in. You paid her more than yourself for years. Yeah. Like three years. Wow. At least. Um, then, you know, I started to realize, okay, if I'm going to, if I'm going to keep doing this, I have to make it profitable. I have to figure out what I'm going to make. And because otherwise, I mean, up, up until very recently, I could have just gone back to being a PT or whatever. I mean, even now, you know, there's many jobs I could get True. that would be similar. So I'm trying to remember the exact year where we sort of went profitable. It was probably, it wasn't much longer after that because once I knew what I had to do, maybe it was another year, say 2015, 2016. And then we started growing 20 to 30% every year. Like we, I really just stayed focused on building this and expanding it. And we started certifying health coaches by then there was more and more of kind of clarity around what health coaching is and the oversight of the program. I built other courses because there was demand for that. Um, I always maintained a small clinical coaching, nutrition coaching practice, PT sometimes, but always telehealth, except in the last year I did do mo most of my work out of a small physical office where I did see a few people in person, but for the last 10, 15, 10, 11 years, I've been, uh, 96% telehealth. Wow. Um, and I really like that because it's, you know, it's so flexible. So, I mean, when people think of women's health, the, the first thing that they think of, I'm, I'm quite certain of it is internal work, mm -hmm. but it sounds to me like you're getting people better without even touching them in the first place. Correct. Now, my perspective is this sort of functional nutrition coaching. So most of the time, I also have people seeing a local pelvic health physical to therapist. To get hands-on work. Correct. So yeah. I'm a part of the team that does more of the nutrition and lifestyle medicine. And they, you know, unless they physically live here, they usually see someone else for pelvic PT. Honestly, even if they live here, I just referred somebody because uh, I don't have enough time to give her what she needs. So um, I, I strongly think that in many cases, hands-on manual internal work, pelvic health, physical therapy is very valuable. Also visceral work, really important, but it's not the whole thing. It's, it's a piece of it. And even that, there's a lot we can do with demos. Like I, one of our graduates, um, her name is Brianne Grogan. She's a PT who's developed a really nice YouTube following, YouTube channel. And a lot of times I give my patients, you know, go do this video. Like there's a lot of awesome videos. I can teach 
when I first started doing this, it was all by phone, but now that we have Zoom and, and even when we had Skype, I could, you know, make recommendations and demo things. And I have all kinds of, you know, I, I've got the pelvis here. I've got all kinds of tools and stuff yeah. I can show people. Um, but, you know, up until COVID where we really had to think about infection control and that kind of thing, I always recommended that people also work with a local hands-on PT. You also are an author. How many, how many books have you written so far? Two. Two. Okay. At what point in time did you say, okay, I need to write a book? And what was the intention of the book at the time that you wrote it in terms of did you look at the book as a way to get the message out? Was it a part of the marketing? Was it a front end? Was it on the back end? Was it supportive? A lot of people are thinking about writing a book. I'm in the process of writing a book. And part of my book is just because I have all of these crazy ideas about how we should be doing orthopedic physical therapy that I don't think anybody is doing. And I'm like, this ha before I die, I get COVID and die, I have to finish <laughs> this freaking book. Yeah. So um, it's almost there. Anyway, good. You, <sighs> you got a book out, then you got a second book out. Where did that fit into your process? So the first book was just because I really felt like I had to start writing this down. Kind of what you just said, like, you know, <laughs> before it was before COVID, but if I get hit by a bus or whatever, yeah, yeah. I want this wisdom to exist, right? Because I feel like it was a gift I was given by my illness and by my unique set of training, you know, which is, a, it is kind of rare to have gone through the training that I have. Mm. Um, and then, so the first book was that, and I really just wrote that like a, a marketing group that I was working with, like basically transcribed. I have a lot of, I've done a ton of speaking at this point. And so they transcribed a whole lot of videos that I have out there or whatever. And we kind of patched it all together and made a book and it was, it's okay. Um, it's not my best work in the universe, but. It's oh, so the first one was, was a patchwork of. Uh, speaking engagements that were transcribed. That's very interesting because I know that there's a lot of different ways to write a book mm -hmm. and doing it that way is very smart, obviously, because you don't actually have to sit down and sort of at a blank screen Canvas, and literally yeah. type, which is very difficult to do. So that's, that's very cool. Did you have help during that process and piecing it all together or did you yourself do the transcribing and the, and the, uh, and the breakdown? No, a marketing team that I worked with that year kind of, you know, looked around, took things that seemed to make sense, patched it all together in this like giant 60 page Google doc. Got it. And then I edited it, which took a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was pretty messy, but it was, you know, that's at least, as you said, there wasn't a blank page. It was right. something to kind of get the information. Now that was out Outsmart there. Endometriosis or the Outsmart Endometriosis was the second book? Outsmart Endometriosis is the second book. The first okay. book is something like um, Nutrition for Pelvic Pain. The fact that you even had to think about it tells me it's not a big part of the picture anymore. <laughs> It's not. I mean, it's yeah. out there on Amazon. Yeah. It's my wisdom, but it's let's not really about, part of it. Let's talk about the second book then. Yeah. The second book, Altorn Endometriosis, I wrote, I spent last summer writing it much more organized, again, really evidence-based. I, and I, I really felt like this was my opportunity to refine my process mm. and take my brain out and put it on paper so that we could get more streamlined in how we help a very specific subset of people with pelvic pain and other issues. So 
it's written for people with endometriosis very specifically around how to get back to work, keep working, you know, because this affects young women whose careers and lives get really derailed by it. So I wanted to get very specific. And I also, it's been helpful for me to, to kind of map out what I do, right? So that was the original intention. And then that summer, I met someone at a marketing conference who was like, okay, this is not, <laughs> this is not useful at all. No one's going to read this. The title's all wrong, blah, blah, blah. So I worked with her and rejigged it basically as a, uh, it's a marketing, well, it's still all of that. It's still the, the bulk, but it's much more useful now as a marketing tool. So it's essentially a lead magnet, um, but a very valuable one. For patients, not for professionals. Uh, for clients, for health coaching clients, also for okay. professionals because it's the method either way. Okay. Um, so for clients, it leads them into a funnel that, you know, invites them to join our health coaching program, which is very specific now. And we're, we're just steadily expanding that. And then for the, for practitioners, it shows them my method. And then if they really want to learn it and be mentored around it, they can take our courses and take our certification program. That's interesting. So the, the clients that get into the funnel through the book, are going into a health coaching program. Is that different or the same than the one-on-one -on -one coaching you do? It's the same. I only really do. We tried group programs, which are okay. I really like this as a complicated population and I prefer to have them in a private one-on-one -on -one coaching. Do you um, do all the coaching yourself or do you have coaches that work for you now? Yeah, I have a team who works for me now. So it's myself and I have another nutritionist and we do kind of the nutrition program. And then I have a team of seven master coaches who do, do the coaching. It sounds to me like that type of model is, it just utilizes so well the team approach and the online approach and telehealth, because I, I take it those people don't need to all be in the same place. They could be anywhere in the in the country working with the people. And because it's not technically physical therapy, it's health coaching. You're not dealing with the licenses in each state. Is Do you have any obstacles that you run into or is it a little bit cleaner because you're working with mostly healthy lifestyle changes as, as the direction? And then you're out, sort of outsourcing, if you will, the actual physical therapy to somebody who's local to that person. Yeah. So from a, we don't really do physical therapy in the health coaching program. Right. I mean, I still have the physical therapy brain. So I kind of consider that they, if they might need it or things like that, or like YouTube videos they can watch, but it's not physical therapy. It's absolutely health coaching. And we refer to physical therapists just like we yeah. refer to endosurgeons. Um, and yes. And so the health coaching board certification, so myself and all of our I think all of them now, they had to, they just, we just had another couple who just passed the exam, but everyone is nationally, well, it's actually internationally board certified because the health coaching, you take your boards just like in PT, you go to a room that has a computer and all that kind of stuff that you have to give your license. You take the exam, but it's a, it's not a state by state exam. It's a global exam. Interesting. I don't yeah. think that existed when I like, I think I did my coaching certification 15 or 20 years ago, and I don't remember there being any kind of national thing that governed. Do you have to have a master's degree or a doctorate to sit for that exam? Or no, you just have to complete a, a program that has been approved by like the board. Okay. So it operates a little bit like 
National Academy of Sports Medicine or ACE or yeah. AFA the, does for fitness professionals in that sense, where you've got to finish a certified program and then you can take the exam to become a certified practitioner. Right. So you have to have certain educational requirements. You take a, an approved program. You have to have some uh, 50 or so clinical hours of experience or coaching hours of experience. Right. And then, yeah, you sit for the exam. This seems like a really interesting option for physical therapists that are really tired of the grind mm -hmm. and of going in every day and wearing out our hands and dealing with the insurance nightmare. And then, okay, we want to start our own practice. And there's all these complications around that. But for the therapist that is really primarily interested in the lifestyle changes, I mean, I know a lot of PTs that I work with and people that have worked for me who, who are really just about like, look, I, and I'm very much like this as well. Like, I'm not going to focus on your boo-boo. Like, mm -hmm. we're going to talk about everything. We're talking about how you sleep, how you eat, how you sit, how you stand, how you breathe. And we're going to get you to move better. We're going to balance the system out a little bit. And guess what? Your pain's probably just going to vanish. But mm -hmm. we're going to focus on developing health. Mm -hmm. And that for me is very much not the way we are sort of taught what physical therapy is. Physical therapy we're taught, unfortunately, is a little bit more like the way a mechanic fixes a car. So mm -hmm. we bring our patients in, we jack them up on a high-low table, we get under the hood, we try to push on a few things, and then we see if they're you know better, worse, or the same. But And a lot of patients, that's what they believe physical therapy is. But I think the longer you've been around, you start to see, okay, why is it some people get better and other people don't? What mm -hmm. is the difference? The input was the same. The input was the same. Why is the output different? Mm -hmm. And in the middle piece, there's this processing. And the, and the processing is completely influenced by their biopsychosocial. And people think biopsychosocial, they think just what's up here, but it's not. The bio piece of biopsychosocial is how does your system work? How does your body function just as a whole? Mm -hmm. And I think when, as a therapist, you get to the point where you realize it's less about the inputs and more about their ability to process the inputs you start to realize how important what you're doing, not what you're doing, but just the concept of what you're doing really is to getting people better. I think it's really interesting and I hadn't really considered coaching as a mechanism for physical therapists to express what they want to do for patients, but to, because you're not quote unquote treating pain, you're treating a human being or not even treating, but you're addressing a human being's behavior. Yeah. And, and that allows you to go a little bit, I don't want to say outside the scope, but just into a different scope. And right. It's a different scope. I'm practicing like yeah. a, a different whole thing from physical therapy. Right. It's like yeah. a different vertical. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's cool. That's cool. So we talked a little bit about like you're using the book as a lead gen how do you, once that people get in, how do you nurture them before they actually convert to become a, a patient or I should so, say a client? A client. Yeah. So first I give them the book and then I wrote a email sequence follow-up that just essentially tells the story of how we help patients transform from the way that they are or clients, the way that they are to the way that they want to be out of pain, digestive health, blah, blah, blah. And I invite them to a call. And then I do calls um, that are, we, our strategy sessions are paid now only because I am so crazy busy, mm. but you could do a free consult or whatever. We have, you know, a, a I noticed on your website, you call them strategy calls. Mm -hmm. I think that's interesting. I, I like the idea of that, that it's not 
a consult or a discovery visit. It's just because you're really, that's really what you're doing, I think. You're strategizing, but it makes them feel like they're part of the process from the beginning. Yeah. And I think that's a very important thing to do. And it changes how any, because we have a lot of clinicians. We actually have a program called Clinician to Coach because as a clinician, you're taught your job is to fix this person. You're the expert, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. As a coach, from the very beginning, you're, you're giving a, a pretty equal responsibility to the client. So this in the strategy session, I'm not attached one way or another to whether or not they join our coaching program. So I did a couple this afternoon. One of them, I was like, she was just like, this is the right fit, da-da-da, ready to do it, whatever. And from the beginning, we're assessing each other to see if it's a good fit. I'm trying to make sure that we can help, you know, what is this person already doing? Um, what have they tried already? What are they willing to do? How much time do they have? How much time are they willing to focus sure. on taking care of their health? The contextual so factors around the process. Yeah. So it's very much like a, a true strategy session on both sides. And if I do think it's a good fit, then we invite them to join the program. And you know, often they do, sometimes they don't, it just depends. And that's really the process. And the more we've systematize the process, I think the easier it gets, even though it is personalized coaching because each one is one-on-one, it's still a very clear process. And I think the book really helped me to create that process because I had to write it down. Right. And systematize it. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to plug my book by keep re- by, by, by <laughs> continually referring to it. All you can a lot uh, yeah. last couple of days. I'm actually in the process of clearing out my, my telehealth schedule so I can have more time to write it. But there is a chapter in the book called The Patient Has the Answers. Yeah. And, and that, um, that phrase comes from my coaching days back when I was taught when, when my coach, who was teaching me how to be a coach, kept telling me, you don't have the answers. You don't have the answers. The only person that has the answers is your client. And mm-hmm. I took that concept into physical therapy to understand that I don't, I don't fucking know what to do. It's mm-hmm. like, I run some tests and their body tells me what to do. Or I ask some questions and they say back to me something and I say it back to them and then they say yes. And I'm like, okay, I guess that's what we got to do. The patient has the answers. You don't have the answers. You might be an expert in your field, but you're not an expert in that person. Yeah. And so I love the way that you've set it up. Um, it get, get, you know, got my wheels turning a little bit. The way that you're including the person early on by calling it a strategy session, how you're running it, it helps them to understand the culture of the approach mm-hmm. and that they come in not thinking that your job is to fix them, but right. rather your job is to be a guide and to show them the opportunities to get better and, and give them a little bit of knowledge and information, but they have to make the changes. They have to make the steps. And I love the way you have the whole thing set up to do that. I think that that you're now out there teaching other physical therapists and coaches how to do that, I think is so key because that is such an important trend in our industry is this idea of empowerment and getting people to understand that they have to make healthier choices. I love when people say to me, can you give me a good exercise for posture? And I'm like, yeah, sit the fuck up straight (laughs) all day. That's what posture is. Just sit up. Stop slouching. (laughs) You'll have good posture. But it's the same thing. It's like nutrition is nutrition. It's like, is there, is there a trick? No, you just, you just have to know what to eat and then you eat it. And I think there's a, there's a, there's of course a lot of obstacles to that, but in many ways, 
you know, there's only so much that we can do from the behavior standpoint. And I love, I just, my point is I love the way you have it set up. I think that's a real inspiration. And, you know, I, I also really like the fact that you went the direction of Institute because it just has that, that idea that this is, this is really about helping people. It's not about a clinic. It's not about a physical space. It's about an educational system, which is really cool. So if, my listeners want to learn more. If they want to grab the book, if they want to get involved in your programs, let them know where to go. Yeah. So our main website is integrativewomenshealthinstitute.com. Mm-hmm. And all of our training is there. To grab a free copy of the book, you can go to outsmartendo.com. And my next book is actually coming out this summer. It's Clinician to Coach. So obviously everything we've talked about today is extremely relevant. And so you can learn more about that at clinic coach.com. All right. That's the one I'm going to be picking up. I want to read that one. Yeah. That's my next Stay, tuned. Stay tuned. Stay <laughs> tuned. All right, Jessica, thank you so much for being on the Physio Mission Podcast. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Physio Mission Podcast. If you haven't done so already, head over to physiosecrets.com and get your first masterclass for free. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know how we're doing. This is Dr. Cooper signing off. Until next time, fuel your passion, believe in your mission, and let nothing stand in your way.